All right, so we'll begin in the book of Jeremiah. You can open it up to the first chapter. The book of Jeremiah, just as a way of introduction, let me just kind of introduce it for a little bit. Um, And your first page of notes, let me give you this disclaimer. This is Pastor Clint's outline. This is what he did at uh, main campus. So what I try to do when I teach is I I just want to keep it similar, uh, keep it the same. I won't teach it exactly the way he taught. Um, You know, he has his own style, but I try to keep the outline the same so your books don't get all messed up and one's completely different than the other. So I will go down and do my best uh, Clint Presley impersonation through the night. We'll try to get it all all lined up. But there's some other things you need to know about Jeremiah as we go through this, um, this book here. It's not laid out like really, you know, in chronological order. It's almost like it's, it's written by an, an adult with ADHD, okay? So it's just kind of uh, put together. There's a lot of sermons and poems and different things that are put together in here, and there's uh, the, chronolo- the chronology doesn't go from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 52. It doesn't flow that way. Uh, the Hebrew people weren't built that way as, as we are as Westerners that like to read in that kind of uh, frame. But it wasn't built that way. It wasn't until like he was 20 years old or had been preaching for a long time then the, the, the Lord asked him to put the collection together. And then he got a secretary named Baruch, which, you know, if you get a secretary and his name is Baruch, who knows what he's going to do, how he's going to put it together. So this is what it is. It's the secretary kind of putting it all together. And uh, so it's not just from point A to point B. So sometimes when you're reading Jeremiah, you can't even tell who's talking at the moment. You have to think. It's, as you read through the Bible, when you get to Jeremiah, you have to do a lot of thinking and pausing and like, okay, wait a minute, who's talking here? Who is speaking? Is this the Lord? Is this Jeremiah? Is this someone else? What, who's, who's saying uh, right here in this passage? So you have to pay attention as you read through uh, the book of Jeremiah, but it is a good book. It's a book of wonderful truth. Um, it's a book of hope and judgment. It's like wrath and grace. Uh, this book... Um, talks about the judgment of God. It is uh, written um, this between 627 and 582 B.C. <clears throat> um, it's written by Jeremiah through the, the, his secretary, Baruch. And uh, it's just helpful as we go through this chapter. We'll see it tonight as we talk about it. The main theme, I think, as you see through this, And we'll look at it in just a moment. I'll open up some passages uh, and and we'll walk through it. But you'll see it's judgment and then then a slight glimmer of hope. But you'll see that as we kind of unveil some things throughout the night. Now, the first page of notes here, as I walk through the introduction a little bit, and I give you kind of a brief sketch here, I may go back and forth. We're going to just flip through from chapter 1 to chapter 23 to chapter... 30, we're just going to, you're going to feel like you're in a Bible study tonight. Uh, That's the way you should feel anyway. So I'm just warning you. You're going to be flipping a lot. It may take me a moment to find a couple of the the verses because I don't have my glasses on. So just bear with me as we walk through it tonight. Everybody good? All right, let's start. So as we we go through uh, the book of Jeremiah, now let me just give you kind of a short outline. Now people can outline this completely different. Um, this is why when every pastor preaches a sermon, we can preach the same passage and have completely different outlines. Um, not trying to make, make the words sound any different or do anything. We just see different things uh, that, that we want to put them in a different framework. So this outline is just kind of a quick overview of what the book of Jeremiah is about. Uh, the chapter um, 1 is basically the, basically the call of Jeremiah, how Jeremiah is called to the ministry here. And to be a prophet. Chapter 2 through like 29 is like the judgment of Judah. It just speaks of how the judgment of Judah is coming. Chapters 30 through 33 is about the new covenant. How God writes the new covenant on the heart of his people. And then chapters 34 through 45 is the fall of Judah. And then you have chapters 46 through 51 is the judgment on all nations. You just like start reading judgment, 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 judgment. 
is to start flipping through it, and every chapter is a new judgment, new judgment, new judgment. And every, every section of the, of the passages are just judgments on all the nations. And then 52 is the destruction of Jerusalem. And so <clears throat> as we get to the beginning of this, I was reminded there is a, my mother was an art history major. And so she loves art. And I don't know if you all know this, but Rembrandt painted a, uh, has a painting of Jeremiah. Uh, it's in one of the famous uh, museums somewhere. I don't know, it's hanging somewhere. Um, she was the art history major, not me. But I do remember she had all these artworks. And so one of, this, one of the artworks is the, is the painting of Jeremiah, the prophet. And he would sketch out like what he wanted to draw. And he would try to capture the entire book, the entire life of this character in one scene. So he would try to paint a picture of this person and try to get everything about this person in one scene. And so all the sketches he drew and all the different uh, you know, iterations he went through, he came down to the last one. And you can look it up on Google and see. But you can see he's leaning over on the Word of God, weeping. And in the background, you can see Jerusalem being destroyed. And this is the picture that Rembrandt himself painted of Jeremiah. And it kind of encapsulates what the book is all about. Is the Word of God that Jeremiah leans on, that he preaches to the people. And yet, even though he's had this message he had to preach that the Jerusalem was destroyed anyway. They didn't repent. They didn't do what the Lord required of them to do. And then there was no hope and destruction was certain in their path. And he wept and wept over this coming judgment that he had to witness for them. So that's kind of the picture that Rembrandt drew of it. And so let's see if we can kind of walk through this ourselves. So the brief sketch that we have is, uh, <clears throat> is that, first of all, Jeremiah is called to be a prophet. Let's just read through maybe the first six verses here of Jeremiah. Um, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to, the, who, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fourth or in the fifth month. So he started as a 20-year-old preacher and served for about 40 years. And he died somewhere in Egypt, uh, according to traditions. We don't really have a recorded death of his, how he died and where exactly he died, but somewhere in Egypt is where he died. <clears throat> and he served for about 40 years of faithful ministry. And here's the call of Jeremiah. It says, verse 4 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He did this when? He did this before Jeremiah was even born on the earth. He knew his purpose for Jeremiah. He knew what he was going to do with Jeremiah. This is why we stand for life. This is why we love life. This is why we hate abortion. We love life because God formed us in the womb, not just Jeremiah, all of us. And he consecrated us, and he made us uh, with a purpose. And so this is very important for us. This gives us hope. This is why we love life and stand against abortion. <clears throat> and then he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and wherever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. This is the call of Jeremiah in his youth. This is what God put in his heart to do. This is what God consecrated him to do. This is what God made Jeremiah to do. He made him to be a prophet to the nations. Which is interesting, he does most of his prophesying to uh, the people of God in Jerusalem. <laughs> but he's a prophet to the nations. <clears throat> this is what he's built to do. He's a little bit reluctant because he responds like, I, 
I don't know what to say. I'm just a youth. I don't know, I don't know anything. I don't know what to do, what to say, how to say it. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just some young man. Don't, don't you know that? I can't speak very well. <clears throat> but the Lord said, don't worry about that. I'll put my words in your mouth. You just say what I tell you to say. You just do what I tell you to do, and you'll be okay. He did this. He was faithful to this for more than 40 years. His ministry by today's standards would not be a ministry you would call fruitful, but it certainly was faithful. Man, he, he served the Lord faithfully. He did exactly what the Lord required of him to do. He served God well in all of his tasks. So we, we see how he served more, more than 40 years. We see that he taught sovereignty. Look at verses 4 through 6 that we just read. Is this, he, called, he called Jeremiah when he was still in the womb. He prepared him for this. He built him for this. God was, God was in control of when Jeremiah was born, who he was born to, and where he would be born, and who he would speak to, and how he would live. God is sovereign over all things. And you see the power of the Lord in his life because God put his very words in his mouth. In verse 10, he says this, which I think is the theme of all the book of Jeremiah. See, I have set you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You see the judgment here, pluck up, break down, to destroy and overthrow. And then you see the hope. You see the restoration to build and to plant. You're going to go through judgment. You're going to go through difficulty. You're about to enter into the judgment of the Lord. You will walk through this. But don't worry, there's hope. There's a purpose to this, and there's hope on the other side. So this is why you see that Jeremiah is about judgment and hope, judgment and restoration, wrath and grace. He wants to tear down, to pluck up, but also to build and to restore. So that's kind of the brief beginning here of Jeremiah's beginning of his ministry. But also I want, to see, I want you to see that his ministry was hard. I mean, he had a hard, hard ministry. Think about all the things that Jeremiah went through. And listen, we could pick out tons and tons and tons of things, but we're going to pick out a few things. I'd like for you to turn to, to chapter 20 with me. And we'll just look at a few things here in chapter 20. You know, Jeremiah was a reformer. Nobody likes reformers. Nobody likes somebody that's going to come in and they, we need, you need to change something about your, your life. You need to change something about your society. Nobody, nobody likes that, but that's who Jeremiah was. He, was a hard, he was, had a hard ministry. He challenged all these religious leaders. They were all about the external. They had religious rituals. It was about what was on the outside. It was not about what was on the inside. God, Jeremiah called them to repent and look at the internal this is what he did, and he asked him to do this. Listen to, uh, um, let's read a few, ch- few verses in Jeremiah 20. Start verse 7. The Bible says, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, just pause there. What is Jeremiah saying here? He's saying me preaching your words become, this is just, I'm a laughingstock. You've deceived me a little bit here. You know, I'm deceived because everything I'm saying, people hate me. They, they, they mock me. They I'm a laughingstock. Whenever I speak, I cry out, and all I'm saying is violence and destruction, and the word of the Lord has this for me. It's become a reproach and a derision all day long. And so it makes me want to, to the point where I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to speak anymore this way. I don't want to follow this plan. Has anybody ever been there? You ever been discouraged about what you feel like the Lord's called you to do? Been discouraged? Well, here's Jeremiah, prophet of God one we speak highly of, and he is discouraged here. And this is what he says in the very next sentence. For the word of the Lord 
has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him, I'm going to stop doing this, or speak anymore in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I can't shut up. Though I want to, though it would make my life easier, though it may make my people like me more, and I, people quit pointing a finger at me and mocking me, and there will be a less burden for me to bear, I can't. This word is like a fire in my bones. It's burn up, and I can't hold it in. I've got to let it out. This is how Jeremiah has lived his life. Listen to, let's turn to chapter 7. <clears throat> like I said, you're going to jump around a little bit. We'll just read a little bit. Um, chapter 7, and Jeremiah says this, chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, this was this chant that these people were chanting. This is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, that they would, they would do. In the Hebrew culture, and we, we talked about this before, and you probably even were, mentioned this last week in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. In that culture, repetition means something. So if they were to repeat a word, you hear this in the New Testament, you hear it sometimes, they say, verily, 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 or truly, truly, I say to you. That means pay attention. If I say something twice, you need to pay attention. The Bible does this many times. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. You'll see this happen a lot in the Scriptures. Repetition means something in their language, in their culture. When you say something to the third time, that is, it's about emphasis. I want this word to be at its highest emphasis, the superlative of this word. That's why in Isaiah, when he says, holy, 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 that's the superlative of holy, meaning this is the holiest this word can get. It can't mean any more holy. This is holy as that uh, word can mean. And these people, were, their lips were trying to say by repetition that this is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, that they loved the Lord or that this was important. But in their actions, their actions were far from the Lord. What their lips were saying, their, their lives weren't uh, matching. And this is what they were. But this is how they, they tried to chant. And they tried to make their lives look godly in the way they spoke, but not in how they lived. And this is who, this is who he was dealing with. And so it was a hard ministry. These people were basically hypocrites and liars. They, he's challenging them to amend their ways and quit chanting this, that what they don't believe and they don't behave. Because really and truly, we all know what you truly believe, you actually behave. If you believe something, you will live that way. And these people were just chanting it with their mouth and not really believing it in their hearts. That's how they operated. And let's turn to 26. We'll read a few things. <clears throat> yes, probably the whole night will be like this. I apologize. <clears throat> He was, I mean, this is just his heart, his life was, uh, it was, life was hard. He, he preaches, I'm going to pick up just a few verses here. He's verse 6, he says, Then I'll make the house, this house, like Shiloh, and I'll make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak, to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. They grabbed him and wanted to kill him. He's just preaching what the Lord commanded him to preach, and they want to kill him. They want to string him up and end his life. Verse 9, why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh? Shiloh had been destroyed. Um, why are you saying this? And this city shall be desolate without inhabitation. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. 
And when the officials of Judah heard these things, they came out from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the new house of the Lord. And then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against the city and as you've heard with your own ears. Like he, he wanted, they wanted to kill him. They hated what he was saying. His ministry was a hard ministry. Not only that, but his hometown, they plotted to kill him. Not, not, just, not just in the moment, not just, just like angry with what he just said. They plotted to kill him. They wanted to end his life and they wanted to do it with plan. Chapter 11, verses 18 says this and following. And the Lord made it known to me and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds, but I was like a gentle lamb and led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. They had a plan to kill him and wipe him off the face of the earth because of what he was saying. People of his hometown. God kept him from marrying. Didn't want him to marry. Imagine how much uh, better his life would have been um, if he just had someone to share it with, to share in this. You know, when you go home and have a hard day and, you know, you have a spouse with you and supporting spouse, it's, there's nothing better than to be able to share in that, that difficulty together and be encouraged. Didn't, uh, didn't happen for Jeremiah. Verses 16, or chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Let's read those just here a minute. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who are born, uh, born them, and the fathers who fathered them in this land. They shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine. And their body, dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. That's a hard saying. He says, you can't take a wife, don't take a wife. You can't have kids. But at least he gets a why. Because they will die here. And their death will be meaningless. It'll be terrible. It'll be tragic. This is a, I want you to see, this is a restraining grace of the Lord. Don't, don't see this as, as terrible from the Lord. See this as a restraining grace. What is a restraining grace? You, you might not even know that you, you receive these all the time in your life. There's many times in your life that you receive the restraining grace of the Lord. Think of it this way. There might be desire for sin in your heart. There might be desire for sin in your life and no opportunity to commit that sin. That's a restraining grace in your life. There may be opportunity to commit that very same sin at a later date and no desire. That's a restraining grace of the Lord. The Lord keeps you and protects you even when you don't know it. There's many times in your life where you don't even know the Lord is restraining grace, has restraining grace in your life. And he had a restraining grace in the life of Jeremiah here. It's a kindness from God. Even in the mission he had was, was terrible, and it was trying, and it was difficult. But this was a kindness of the Lord to Jeremiah. <clears throat> Chapter 23, we'll go back to 23. Verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. I want you to remind, I want to remind you that there's a, there's a restraining grace and then there's just grace that God gives us. There's a saving grace. And that saving grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose Lord, the Lord is our righteousness. It's just a reminder of this. Um, as, I, as I mentioned restraining grace, I wanted to make sure that I, mentioned saving grace because and we hear the gospel here preached all the time 
is that the Lord, you're not your righteousness. Your deeds aren't your righteousness. Your riches, your uh, religious rituals aren't your righteousness. Nothing you can produce can be considered righteous. But the Lord is our righteousness. And this is who we cling to. This is who we call to, and that's Jesus. It's pointing to Christ. So um, we'll kind of move on. Probably died in Egypt, uh, verses, uh, or chapter 43 is kind of like the last time you, you see Jeremiah mentioned here in the book. Uh, just, I'll turn here real quick. Sorry, my pages stick together. Chapter 43, and I'll kind of look at verse 6 here, I guess, will be uh, probably the best one for me to just read. The men, the women, the children, the princes, the, uh, and every person whom Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, uh, sorry, the son of Ahikim, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, and they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived in uh, Tephanes. This is when this is kind of the last time we, we see that Jeremiah was with them when they went to Egypt. Uh, because they weren't supposed to go to Egypt. They, they all went. Jeremiah was with them when he went, and he probably died there. Uh, church history tells us, this is the Tertullian would say that he was drug out and stoned. So all the church history, uh, church fathers would all agree that he was probably stoned there. He was probably about 70 years old, so he probably served the Lord for 50 years, and his life was taken from him by stoning. Baruch was his secretary. You see that. We've seen that many times. We've talked about it already. He collected all his works, put them together. And then in chapters 45 through 52, you see where Babylon, Babylonian captivity has taken place then. So just a quick reminder, just a quick reminder of this. The northern kingdom had already been captured by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, which is who we have now, who he's speaking to, they're about to be captured, and they get taken into captivity. Jeremiah is, sees that part, but doesn't see the, the destruction of Babylon and the, the recovery 70 years later. Doesn't get to see that. Doesn't see the end. So that's kind of where it ends. And he doesn't even really get to see last time we see Jeremiah is in chapter 43 and Baruch finishes the book all the way through chapter 52. <clears throat> That's kind of where you see just a real quick sketch of the book of Jeremiah. So I'll just try to give you a real quick sketch of what the book of Jeremiah is about. And now I just kind of want to go through some of the themes of Jeremiah. So I got about 20 minutes to go through 10, 11-ish themes. Everybody Good. Nobody needs a break? All right. <clears throat> All right, make sure you keep your fingers turning because we're still going to jump around a little bit. Okay, themes are, and we'll turn to chapter 10. Just read a little bit here. I won't read all 16 verses. I'll just read a little bit. I want you to hear it. Uh, God alone is the living God and the creator. The Bible says in Chapter 10, verse 1, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the, people, of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all the, their kingdoms, there is none like you. Meaning that God is, he is the only one true and living God. All the false gods that they make, all the ones they make with their hands, 
the scarecrows, the trees they use to carve stuff, they've got to carry their gods. They've got to put them out. They've got to put faces on them. They've got to do all the things for their own gods. They can't even walk. But nobody has to do anything for the Lord. He is creator God. He is a faithful God. But his people here in Jeremiah are unfaithful to him. He is always faithful, and we were always unfaithful. They worship false gods and false idols and powerless gods, ones that can't do anything for themselves. He's calling the people to be steadfast and walk with the Lord, yet they do not. This is a call for us today to continue to be steadfast. This is something we can learn. This is a theme that we can learn from in the book of Jeremiah, something that we can glean from this book is that we should walk with the Lord. We should be steadfast. We should not chase after idols that mean nothing, that cannot do anything for us, that have no power to give us any hope at all. We do chase after those things. We chase after many idols in our life. If we're honest, we chase after so many. And they can't provide any, anything for us. Number two, God called Israel into a special relationship that sin has broken. Chapter two Verse 13 here says this, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I'm this wellspring of life. I'm where all things come from. I am the one true God. You have forsaken me. And then secondly here, he says, And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've you've forsaken me, number one. And number two, you've you've created false gods. You've created these cisterns for nourishment. All throughout the Bible, you'll see where men dig wells. They dig wells for what? They dig wells for nourishment, for strength, to continue moving forward. It's significant all throughout the Bible in the patriarchs. They're even named after them. It's a reminder how God has provided and how God has done for them. And he's the true living water. And yet here we are building cisterns that are empty and that can't even hold true water. And any water that they do have is poisonous. But yet we seek after false gods. We seek after things The sin of people have broken this covenant. They've broken this relationship with the Lord. We always chase after things that that we think will give us strength and yet have no strength to give. This is the secularist, humanistic way of life that we, we seek after today. And it's something we should stay far, far away from. The sufficiency of Scripture should be enough in our life. Scripture provides all that we need. You must trust it. You must gain your strength from the word of God. Number three, false gospels don't heal. Chapter six. Chapter six, verses 13 through 15. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Remember how we talked about repetition. There's no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I will punish them, and they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. They chase after a false gospel. Here's where people are saying, if you do this, you'll have peace, peace. This provides peace, peace. They chase after things that will never provide peace. They will never give what only the Lord can give. And they're not ashamed of their sin. They don't even blush. This is, this is an indictment for us today. There are sins and, and things that we're involved with that we don't even blush at. There's no shame at all. People say, well, the Lord doesn't want me to be ashamed. I see otherwise in Scripture. Shame is not a a bad thing. Shame should push us to the Lord because then he takes not only our sin at the cross, but he also takes our shame. There's a song, my all in all. Not only my sin, but my shame as well. But you have to see the shame 
so that you run to the cross. If you don't see the shame and you don't see the sin and you don't believe that there's sin and there's reason for you to run to the cross, you'll never run to the cross. We have to have that first. That's why false gospels don't heal. Only the true gospel heals. This is why moralism is the enemy of the gospel. What do you mean? Well, people all the time say, well, back in my day, we would never have gotten to this point in sin. Back in my day, we wouldn't, we wouldn't live this way. We would take people. Let me, let me I, I have a few articles in my office that I read from time to time. It's a story about a man who shoots another man in the middle of a, a town for his shoes. And there's another story about a, a gentleman who climbs in the window of an elderly woman and stabs her over 30 times and kills her and steals money from her. And it's in a newspaper. He said, Rick, when was that newspaper written? It could be in the newspaper when? Today. It could be in the yesterday's newspaper. It could be on Twitter right now. But both those articles were written in 1910 and 1908. Let me say something to you. There's a reason that God sent Noah to build a boat. Sin has always been with us. It's not new. It's always been with us. It's not like sin all of a sudden started happening in in this day. And in your day, it was not around. Sin has always been with us, and we need the gospel. And we need to run to the gospel, but we must see our sin to run to the true gospel. Number four, God rules the present. Chapters one, or chapter one, verses four through 16. We've read this number of times at this point, but I want us to see something here. Let's read verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I see, an, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time. What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north. I'm calling. This is present day. This is going to happen now. I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls around them, against all the cities of Judah, and I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in, in forsaking me. And they made offerings of, to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. I'm the God of the present. He's the God of the present right now. He's calling them. There's, there's punishment being delivered to them right now in that moment. He was, he was God then. He was over what was going on then. In the moment. He's going on right now. He is God in the tragedies and the triumphs. Whatever your difficulty you're going on, that's going on in your life right now, he's God over it right now. He's sovereign over it. You see, that's, that's hard to hear sometimes. Yes, it is. But could you imagine serving a God Serving a God who is powerless over the tragedy and difficulty you're walking through. Who had no purpose to it. He's got his hands tied. He can't do anything about it. You're walking through this difficulty and he's like, I don't know how to help you. I can't do anything for you. What's better is that we have a God who's actually using that tragedy and in for a purpose in your life. And you say, I don't know if I, can, if I can hear that right now. I'm walking through a difficulty. And I know, I, I, I'm sorry that you're having to walk through that difficulty but you're not walking through it without purpose. God is the God of the present right now and over this tragedy in your life or this triumph in your life, whatever you may be going through, he is God right now. And he's ruling right now. He is sovereign over the moment. And God not only rules the present, he also rules the future. You turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. It's the most famous verse in the entire book of Jeremiah. Everybody knows this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Most people can probably quote it to you. But let's, let's maybe remember the context of this verse. He's telling them you're about to walk through 70 years of judgment. And in 70 years, in 70 years, verse 11 is going to be the promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, the plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope 70 years from now. And this was written to these people for this moment, not for your graduating seniors. I'm sorry, I just have to tell you this. But that's what that verse was written for. 
You're about to go through 70 years of captivity and difficulty and terrible things that are taking place. But I want you to know something. i got plans for you. i got a future and hope for you. You know that difficulty you're walking through right now? There's a plan for that. There's a future for that. Verse 10, or verses 1 through 10, we could probably read the whole thing, but let's not. Let's just read. Verse 10 says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back from this place. He's made a promise to his people for this. Most people don't read verse 10, they just read verse 11. He is the God of the future. He, is going to, he rules now and he rules in the future. He's not bound by time. All right, I got to hurry. So, number six, God protects his chosen people. Back to chapter one. I know you're getting tired of this. Verses 17 through 19. We just finished verse 16. Verse 17 starts with a, with a but. It says, but you, talking about I've got judgment for these people that have been living incorrectly and have done the wrong things. But you, you're, you're my people, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. I am with you. I will deliver you. I promise this to you. He protects his people. In the midst of trouble, God protects his people. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it. But I promise you, God has made a promise, and he is the promise keeper. And he always keeps his covenants. And he's made this promise to his people. Number seven, God saves those who turn to him. Chapter 12 tells them basically to repent and believe in the Lord, to, to repent of their ways, and he, he will restore to them. Verses 14 through 17. Let's read uh, those verses real quick. Sorry. I have fat fingers. Sometimes it's not easy for me to turn these skinny pages. <clears throat> Verse 14 says this. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. It, to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as I as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Then they, set, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck them up and destroy it, declares the Lord. He's like, if, if they'll just do what I've told them to, even though they've, they've committed their lives to Baal, even though they were taught how to commit their lives to Baal, I, I will take them back. Just turn to me. Turn to me and trust me, and I will have mercy on them. This is what he teaches. This is the gospel. He teaches, turn from your wicked ways and repent. Turn to me and I will, uh, and believe in me and I will give you grace and mercy. This is what he declares. And this has been the message of the gospel. The human heart is sick and only God can cure it. This is number eight. Chapter 17, nine through 10. Basically, the heart is deceitful. You can't trust. This is why you don't tell somebody, hey, do whatever you feel like in your heart. Whatever your gut tells you to do, whatever you think that your heart is leading you to, follow your heart. That is the worst advice given to men ever. Don't follow your heart. You need to lead your heart. Your heart is terribly sick. It's wicked. Who can know it? Only God can know your heart. Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The Lord is the one who can measure the heart. He's the one that tells us how the heart is leaning and if it's sick. He reveals to us. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us. It illuminates in our heart and mind. He illuminates to us what we should do and should not. God is a potter. This is a great picture of the Lord. 
his kindness to us in chapter 18, 1 through 6. 1 through 6. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I'll let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was, was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. He can form us and fashion us any way he sees fit. And he can take a spoiled pot, a spoiled piece of clay and turn it into something beautiful and wonderful and usable. This is what the Lord does. He shapes us the way he wants to shape us. And let the master shape your heart and shape your life. This is what he does. My mom, I told you she was a, uh, she's an art history major. She, she served in our public school system for years. She's an art teacher as well. And so she had a potter's wheel. And uh, she, one time the pastor of the church, local church, asked her to do, uh, make a pot while he's preaching a sermon in Jer- Jeremiah. And she was so afraid because if you don't get the, the clay in the dead center of that wheel, if you don't get it just right, and it goes too fast. That thing will fly off and hit somebody. She was like, I just can imagine this clay flying off and the deacon in the first row getting kicked out of the church. But it, in the whole picture of this, as she's doing this, this wheel and working it, it's, it's neat how she can make that thing any way she wants. She can make it in a shape. She can make it a coffee mug. She can put swirls in it. She can make it big and small, whatever she wants to do. It's in her hands, and she can make it however she wants to. The clay is subject to her. We are subject to the master. He can put you where he wants to put you. He can shape you the way he wants to shape you. He can make you where you need to be. That's what the Lord does, and you need to trust him. And don't resist his shaping. Like that spoiled clay, you can resist and resist and resist. You have to work it harder. Some of us just are hard-headed, and we need more working than others. But this is a grace of the Lord. Number 10, his new covenant is coming. It's hated by Satan. Chapter 31, and there's so many more things I'd like to say here, and I don't know that I'll get to them all. I don't think I will. Chapter 31, verse 15. I think that's right. Well, sorry. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted by her children because they are no more. This is weeping. This is, the, the Satan hates this. Thus says the Lord, keep reading. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. There is hope coming, and that hope is Christ. There is a new covenant coming. There is a new covenant that he'll write on the hearts of his people. I will make sure that it's on their, on their hearts. This is what the new covenant is, and it's a grace of God. It's pointing us to Christ. And see, Satan can only distort. He can destroy. He can't create. So he has nothing but destruction to provide, distortion. It is only the Lord that can provide grace and mercy to us. The Bible tells us, thus, verse 23 of chapter 31, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and its cities, when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of the righteous, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and the, those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy their weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked at my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the, Lord, when I, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of the beast. And it shall come to pass, as I have watched over them, to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring harm. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die from his own iniquity. And each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I have made with their fathers on the day 
when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for, the, for those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each teach his neighbor, and each his brother say, knowing, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant written on their hearts all through Christ, and he fulfills that in Jesus Christ. In verses 31 through 34 of that whole chapter, there's so much more here that I'd like to read to you, but I'm running out of time. I would like to say a couple things. Let me me just read. Well, let me just say this. In the end of Jeremiah's life, before he's taken off to Egypt, before he's stoned to death and killed, he does something interesting in the passage in the book. He buys land. The Lord tells him to buy land. He buys land where his hometown was from, in Anathoth. He buys land there. And it's to symbolize the promise of God that he's going to bring his people back, that they will come back there and they will have hope there. So this book is about the judgment of God. It's about the wrath of God, but it is about the hope and the grace that he provides through Jesus Christ. It continually points to Jesus all the way through this book. Everywhere you look, every judgment you see, it's all underpinned and underlined with the hope of Christ, with a little bitty ray of light, everything that they go through, every difficulty they see. He reminds them, listen, you're here, but I want you to plant. I want you to marry women and marry men, and I want you to have children, and I want you to have farms, and I want you to enjoy this time. You're going to be in captivity. You're going to be in 70 years of it. You're going to have a terrible time, but don't stop living. Enjoy life and enjoy the grace of God and be reminded that the promise that I've given you, that I will restore to you one day, that I have plans for you in the future, I will keep that promise. And that promise is coming through Jesus Christ in the new covenant that I've given you. That promise has been delivered. And we must trust Christ. We must live that way. And we, in this difficult world we live in right now, you and I that we are caught up in right now today, can live with hope, just like the people in captivity live with hope just like they married, just like they had children, and just like they trusted the Lord for hope in the future, we should live that way now. We shouldn't live scared. We shouldn't live with our eye to the sky going, oh, man, Jesus come back right now and just end this whole thing. We can look to the Lord with joy that he's coming back one day, but don't stop living. Don't stop having uh, children. Don't stop being married. Don't stop uh, planning your home. Don't stop doing the things of life and enjoying everything the Lord gives you. Trust the hope we have in Christ. All right, let's pray. That's all I've got. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We pray that you would be honored by all things that take place in this building tonight. We're thankful for the word of God that our children are learning in the, in the WANA program. We're thankful for the faithful pastors and teachers we have here. We're thankful for all the people that love your word, to sit, to listen, to not only to hear it, but to go out and live it on a daily basis. We pray that you'd encourage them, that you'd strengthen them, and that you'd give them hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.